0: When we look at the qualities of great coaches and great leaders, there are four that we've been able to identify. One is compassion, really being interested in the other people. Curiosity, being really interested in them and their perspective. Courage, to really place up to the difficult questions. And connectedness, how connected are they with all the members of the team and with the external world? And those four C's seem to be real core qualities that we're looking for in a coach and we're looking for in a leader.
1: There's a lot of talk about coaching but what should you focus on if you truly want to coach the right kind of performance in your team? Welcome to Revenue Riser. I'm your host, Anna bricknell and in this episode, we'll be exploring some of the latest thinking about what makes great coaches and great leaders. I was so delighted that David Clutterbuck accepted my invitation to share his wisdom and research. I first met David back in 1999 when I co-founded what would rapidly become the largest independent coaching and mentoring information resource, David was already well-established and regarded as a leading player in the field and now has an incredible number of books to his name. To me, David always combines serious purpose, robust research, and a strong pinch of fun and infectious enthusiasm. I met Emmett Flourish more recently when his sales manager coaching platform came to my attention. In fact, it was our conversation that led to this episode. I was really taken by Emmett's down-to-earth recognition of the challenges sales managers and leaders have in really coaching their teams. He's on a mission to fix that, and his candor and ideas are both common sense and refreshing. We had a lot to talk about, so join us for a wealth of tips and ideas to take your coaching to the next level. So coaching for sales leaders is a pretty big topic. And David, I know leadership is changing the way we might think about leadership is changing, and particularly this idea of collective leadership, but individually incentivized people. So do you want to start off the conversation by giving us a sense of where you see leadership and some of the context around that?
0: The idea of leaders go back 60, 70 years, or even less and the idea that the leader was somebody who sat as called the hub and spoke. The leader was in the center and they got everybody else to do things and told them what to do. That model is so slow that it just doesn't work in a modern environment. It hasn't worked for a long time. And what we've seen is de- leadership being defined much more in terms of making of enabling things to happen. So a secure leader is somebody who doesn't necessarily manage other people. There's somebody who re- creates the environment where people can manage themselves. And a lot of our research around that re- really reinforces that. And if we just take what is leadership and its basic core, leadership has, is just three components you identify things that need, to need attention. You come up with how you're going to deal with them, and then you make sure that the solution you, is implemented. Now, it doesn't mean you have to say that you have to do all these things yourself. It doesn't mean to say that it has to be vested in one individual. It's a process, leadership. And a big distinction is between being the leader, the titular person, and the whole process of leadership. And what we're finding is increasingly that leadership is becoming a distributed function. The boundary between what the titular leader does and the rest of the team, who takes the responsibility and authority for doing things, in other words, is becoming much less clear. It's a continuous and changing negotiation. It's an evolution. And in the research that we did, we tried to find out what is it that only the titular leader can do. And we spent quite some time working on this, asking people around the world, looking at what very little research there is. It's remarkable how little research there is on this. There's millions of articles about leadership uh, and books about about leadership and the traits of leaders, but what they actually do is much smaller. So what we learned from this was that the majority of things, everything from coaching to discipline to to deciding bonuses, setting strategy, these are all things the team can, can be shared with the team. Only two things have emerged that that we cannot find good examples of being shared with the rest of the team. One of those is getting authority from above. So you can spend money, you can take people on, and so forth. And the other one, very simple, protecting the team from interference from outside that stops them getting on with their work. Everything else can be distributed.
1: And I think those are the two things that probably leaders are most highly valued for by their team members.
0: Absolutely. So a big question, which wonderful question we like, a coaching question, is what does your team actually need you for? And then the other big question is, how are you getting in the way of them actually getting on with their work?
1: I think it was interesting, as this episode is all about coaching, that I'd entirely agree with you, I'm sure Emmett will as well, that coaching is something that can be done by anybody. Yeah. If we think about specifically for the leader and the kind of coaching that they're doing, and Emmett, perhaps this is a good point to bring you in here as well, leaders have a particular responsibility around coaching, don't they?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was interesting there to hear David talk about the evolution of leadership. I'm obviously in the B2B SaaS space. It's relatively young in the software as a service space, but we're starting to see some shoots of that evolution happening already. I think um, you know a lot of times... People have been put into management positions particularly on the software sales side that are not necessarily great leaders they've not been shown how to lead they've been shown how to manage and they manage a lot by tasks and activities and crm data and all that kind of good stuff look it's important right i think one of your earlier podcast sessions talked about being data-led i think it was episode three the early david he talked about having structure and consistency And how important that was to grow and scale the team i think it's the same thing from a coaching perspective you have to have structure you have to be consistent in your expectations and i think that can come across in a certain way to certain organizations and i think where people kind of fall behind on the coaching side is they have all the data and they don't know how to join up the dots and come up with a coaching plan from it so it was really interesting to hear david talk about you know the types of questions that can be asked as a leader i think a lot of the times particularly in sales because we're so data driven we get in our own way and it takes a little bit of experience to go, you know, my job is to be almost cannon fodder for the sales team to say, OK, make sure I'm blocking anything that's distracting you from actually doing your job as a salesperson.
0: There's a lovely phrase that comes up frequently. Well, what the hell are we here for? So there's so much data and it gets in the way of actually so often we end up chasing the Louis and forget why we're there. And part of the leader as coach and the coach working with leaders is to help refocus. What are we here for? Ultimately, what are we trying to achieve? And is what we're doing actually taking us towards that or getting in the way?
2: Yeah, I think, and I think you know, it's interesting is what you pointed out. that You talked about comp plans and a little bit at the start and, and structure there for sales leaders. And that kind of is conflicting on the sales side. Because we get sales leaders all the time say, We want sales reps to our co- sales managers to coach their reps. But then they say, You got to be in the deals. <laughs> drive, drive those deals from you, drive those forward. And what we've always said here at, at Control is, is we use the phrase deals or the launch pad for coaching. Because on the software side, we can see the activity that, that sales reps are doing, we can see what managers are doing, we see what's sticking from a sales training perspective, we can see what skills need developing. But it's not the be-all and end-all, because from a coaching perspective, there is just so much more. And when you have those conversations with your sales team, it is about facilitating and giving them that space for the managers to ask the questions, as opposed to being the manager that goes in there and just goes, do this thing, and
0: do this thing, and do this thing, because
2: that's not really coaching. Right? That's just telling people
0: what to do. And this is this, this is whole myth that the role of the leader, or the, the team leader, is to coach the team. And that sometimes can be true, but most of the time, that's wrong. The role of the team leader is to create the environment where coaching happens. And much of that is between members of the team. And if you want to overcome the resistance of it, because people who need the help most are the ones who are most resistant to it very often because they don't want to make it look small. So the basic ground rules as a team leader in a sales environment is that if you want people to be responsive to coaching by you, then you have to first reach out and seek coaching from them and sharing your development plan with them and say, look, this is how I'm trying to go. I'd really value your feedback to me. When they can do that, they feel comfortable that you're creating the psychological safety for them to be able to engage with you where the coaching is relevant to them. And it's this creating of a psychological contract that is not about boss subordinate, it is about working together to improve everybody.
2: And I think sometimes We're salespeople, egos get in the way, right? And we feel that we have to know all the answers. I know certainly for me, when I was a a younger sales manager, I thought I did have to know all the answers and I did have to tell people what to do. And it took me a long time to realize that it's okay not to know the answers and to ask for that feedback. Curious as to your experience there, David, when you go in and and you go to an organization and you say that to people, like how often would a sales leader actually put that theory into practice to go, here's my development plan,
0: here's what I'm doing, and be that open with, with their team. Actually, we find that salespeople are often more conducive, largely because they're more curious than, say, people from finance. I mean, we don't want to typify a stereotype here at all, but there is more curiosity um, because they're more interested in people, therefore they're more interested. And so that does seem to work that they are open to being challenged in this way. But of course, there's always a personality factor. Your high narcissist is not. But I think when we ask the question, we get the team leader and the team together and we say, we say to the team, what do you need from your sales manager to be able to perform at your best? And then they begin to learn this and then they can begin to say, okay, this is what I need from you in return. So you create the conditions where, there, where there's a constant exchange of potential for learning, but supportiveness for in both, both ways. It's not a boss subordinate. It's a collegiate I- I- I environment. And that seems to be so healthy.
1: I think it's a really powerful place to get to, and that psychological contract and that psychological safety is really important. I think the steps that people go through here, and I'm interested in both of your experiences and views around this, because a manager that has come into a role, a little as you have both described, where they think they've got to know all of the answers – are in that loop where people are coming to them. They're looking at the deal or they're looking at how somebody's getting on and they're coming up with suggestions or they're telling the person what they think they should be doing. So you end up in a pattern of behavior where the salesperson thinks, when I go and ask my boss about something or when we're having a one-to-one, they're going to be telling me what they think I should be doing. So when I've got a problem and I go and say, hey boss, what do I do about this? I'm expecting to be told what to do. And so it's really interesting, I think, when a leader starts to change that pattern of behavior. And, you know, they've they've had a bit of coaching on how to coach. So they think, oh, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to ask them a question and I'm going to get them to come up with the answer. And so they sort of dive in with some questions and it completely confuses the individual and B, they kind of push back on it. But they kind of say, well, hang on a minute. I didn't come to you to be, you know, I'm looking to you for the answer. And so there's a mind shift that has to happen between those parties to start that process. And of course, you know, over time, then it builds up that trust and that expectation. And I think ideally you want to get to a place where often the individual doesn't go to the leader to say, I've got a problem. What should I do? Because they can think, I know what the leader's going to ask me. I can coach myself on this at least to a point where now maybe I just want to go in a bit of a sanity check that am I going down the right path perhaps? But that process is, it sounds really simple to get people to that point, but it it isn't, is
0: it? Absolutely. We did about 10 years ago, we went out and asked a lot of companies what actually happened when you did a, a, a sheep dip, you know, a line managers coach course, and you gave them two days and you send them back enthusiastic into their teams. And the first thing that happened was everybody thought, what's he on? I wonder if I should try some. And if they were clunky at it, which most of them were, it was really embarrassing and awkward for everybody. And if they were any good at it, everybody said, well, hang on, why am I doing your job for you? And so forth. So we, it was not possible from the way that we constructed research to get a nice, neat figure. But frequently we found within a handful of days, they'd gone back to normal and everybody forgot all about it. And what we learned from that, we did experiments with a whole range of organizations from ASDA through to the National Health Service. We basically looked at how do you actually get the team and the team leader together to build the confidence in the coaching process, to understand the coaching process. We're just about to launch a whole new way of looking at this too. We've been working on, we've had a research team working on for a while now. And the way that we see this working now is that you have the conversation as a team together. And the team leader's role is, is to lead that conversation but they're learning at the same time. And the first place you have to start is, why should we have a coaching culture in this team? And then you can start to look at things, some of the skills like listening skills and say, okay, how can we get better at listening to our customers or other stakeholders? How can we apply this to the real work that we're doing? And so you you can create a a really strong coaching culture in a team if you take it progressively and you see it as a co-learning exercise rather than something that the team leader is trying to impose upon the team. Yeah,
2: I think that's a really good point. One of the, my shortest tenure on my career path, if you look back at my LinkedIn profile, I just moved back from the States, right? Every high performing sales organization, we went from an account worth $150 million to 1.1 billion in annual revenues for the company massive organization, really high performing. And I came back to Ireland, joined this company, and I had a manager there that used to say, don't come to me with uh, problems, just come to me with solutions. Because he read it in the book somewhere, right? A page 27 of the book says, say that. Did not sit well with me at all, because I was like, well, if I knew what the solutions were, I wouldn't come and ask you, right? So I was that person that did that. And then I think to your point of, it has to be a collective whole to get the coaching climate put into place. It has to be the psychological safety, you have to be open to it. And then you have to make it referenceable, if that's a word, (laughs) because you have to be able to refer to what it is you're trying to achieve. And you have to hold people accountable. And it's not just coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in tablets saying we're going to be a coaching culture and everyone's going to be coached. People have to buy into the messaging and they have to agree with it. And you have to lead by example and show that, again, as a sales leader, I'm willing to be coached or I'm looking to get things done as well. And I think that's huge.
0: When we look at the qualities of great coaches and great leaders, they're very, very similar. Um, And humility is floating around in there somewhere, but there are four that we've been able to identify. One is compassion, really being interested in the other people and having self-compassion too. Another one is curiosity, being really interested in them and then their perspective. Courage is really important. The courage to really place up to the difficult questions, like what if I, as the team leader, and the team's biggest problem, which is a great question for external coaches to ask. And connectedness, how connected are they with all the members of the team and with the external world? And those four C's seem to be real core qualities that we're looking for in a coach and we're looking for in a leader.
2: Yeah. And I think, uh, again, coming back to some of the earlier discussion, culturally, they have to be ingrained because people can talk the talk all day like and they can see all the words. We believe in our people and we're a family and we're coaching everyone and all that kind of stuff. If at the end of the day, they reward the bad behavior, particularly on a sales organization. I'll give you an example of that. I had a a sales leader that used to love talking about training and people development and everything. And I was a sales director at the time, and I was trying to ingrain that habit of of having people come, be open, asking questions and all that. And then at the end of the quarter, it was just like, bam, 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 where are my deals? Where are my deals? Where are my deals? Uh, We have to get to this number. And then there was one particular rep on the team used to try and hide his numbers in the CRM and he pushed push them out. And then he put them all in at the end, at the end of the quarter. And it was like, great job, man. Great job. I know what it comes to me. I know what it comes to me. I know who it comes to me. I said, would you just undermine everything I'm trying to do as, as a sales leader in EMEA by reinforcing that bad behavior? And it's not helping anybody. And it's not coaching anybody. It's just going, hey, we, we got the deals that aren't really great. Same thing when you change up your comp plan. You know? I was reading a report today, some company called Bob. I don't even know him, and further the VC code. But basically, there was a survey done of people in Ireland, in the UK and Ireland, and it said three out of 10 30-year-olds are not happy in the tech world, primarily due to all the uncertainty in the space, right? But also, the other reasons were poor manager relationship and lack of career development. So the biggest, most wanted perk they had was obviously flex hours and hybrid office location. And that brings its own challenges then when it comes to coaching and managing people. And that's a significant challenge we're facing, you know, we we'll say, since the pandemic and COVID.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was finding myself when you talked about being a happy family. When everybody says, we're just one big family here in this team or this organisation, I always respond with, really, is it that bad? <laughs> <laughs> you can choose your family, but not your family. <laughs> and it just makes them stop and think. And I think it's not just a family. We are there to achieve a common purpose, or to be much more precise, a shared purpose. There's a big difference between a common purpose, which you see in a group, and a shared purpose, which you have within a team. Too many teams just have a common purpose, and sales teams have this problem that very often they are structured so that they don't have a shared purpose. They're non-interdependent. It's all about a common purpose. They're all there individually to make as much money as they can. So part of the role of of, of coaching as a team leader is to actually help them to develop a shared purpose, so they're supporting each other. We had a classic example of this two or three years ago now, and this was a sales team. They got two died in the wall long term. Divas, I suppose. They, they were the guys, they had the biggest accounts, and they called all the shots. And the team leader was, was I've never called this, and they had a new team leader come in, and, and, and she was quite fed up with this. And she could see that they were stopping the potential growth of all the others uh, because they'd all, and, and a, a good account come in, they say, I'll take that one. And so they said, We need to create a team. But these two guys just basically said, Now, we're, we're doing our own thing. Thank you very much. You carry on. Yeah, we, we, we're not interested. So on the basis, okay, well, the team is the group of people who are prepared to come together and support each other and to act like a team. So the team leader and the team worked with this, the two, and then they said, right, well, in that case, we have to have a contract with you two about how you're going to contribute. So they had a nice document with, with KPIs that they expected from them, and they just basically ignored them as it were, and just got on with, with, with building the business as a team. And the five other guys and women started to gradually grow by coaching. being coached by the manager turning her attention to them rather than to the guys that were going off and doing their own thing, were quite happy in their own, own little world. And over a period of about 18 months, the five of them started to overtake the other two. And one of them realized what was happening and said, actually, can I come in, please? Can I play? And that was okay. And the other one was so pissed off he left and it didn't have that much difference. And all sorts of, as as usually in these cases, all sorts of skeletons came out of the cupboard at that point too. So I think by focusing on those people who want to be a team, we can improve performance of the the collective performance much more than focusing on people as as individuals. And this whole thing about individual salaries, rewards and bonuses, without some kind of cross-fertilization, of cross-dependency, inevitably, the way that we structure reward systems works against supporting your colleague.
1: I wonder now if there's a little more appetite since the days of COVID, when salespeople who are often quite sociable, I think not as many are as highly extrovert as people imagine from the stereotype. We do have much more of a mix. But nevertheless, you know, they're used to being out, they're used to engaging with people. And I think, you know, two years that many had working from home has caused more of them to look across and think. What are my colleagues doing? What are my peers doing? What are they learning? And I see a bit more appetite to do that. But it is on the leader, as we talked about, to try and create the atmosphere in which that can happen, the environment which can, it can happen, because those things don't naturally occur, other than maybe on a person to person basis where they get on and there's a natural affinity but there's not really a structured or an inclusive way of learning there unless you create the environment for it, is there?
0: Absolutely. I mean, a great question to team leaders in a sales environment is what are you doing to leverage the whole system rather than the individual bits of it? And so how are you creating additional value by getting people to collaborate as opposed to everybody just doing their own thing? And most often that's a revelation as a question.
1: Absolutely. And and I've seen some great examples of, I mean, just taking some really simple things and thinking about maybe sales leaders listening to this episode, I'm thinking, God, there's (laughs) there's a ton of stuff to do here. Where do I start? But just that sharing, you know, very often the weekly sales meeting, if that's what they have, or a monthly sales meeting, is all about everybody goes around and talks about what's on their forecast. And the leader tells them, well, you know, this is new stuff coming from the company and, you know, new policies or new products or whatever. And most people are trying to, answer their emails or do other things when it's you know it's that classic non-definition of listening which is you know what we listening is what we're doing while we're waiting for our turn to speak and it's that kind of mentality that'll be coming up to my turn but until then I'm going to half listen and actually just reinventing the sales meeting and there are so many ways you can do it so it's not just a round robin maybe you have a different salesperson or somebody different lead the meeting it doesn't to your point David it doesn't have to be the leader that leads the sales meeting maybe you hand that over to different salespeople that you know you you deep dive into certain areas that you have more group discussions around here's a challenge we're facing what do we do about it I mean they're, they're the simplest things but they take a bit of conscious thought and conscious effort to introduce but can be Really important stepping stones to helping to create that mindset that then is going to lead those individuals to talk more to each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, like you know, pre COVID, we're all extroverted introverts. So all the salespeople are out there doing their thing, and I come across this all the time. Right. So since I moved back from I was field sales in the states, and I moved back of inside sales, and inside sales was always seen as the the junior stepchild to, to real sales, which was field sales. But like I've sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of software in Europe all over the phone. But we always had a lot of crack, good fun in the office, right? And you'd learn from your colleagues on the floor. You'd learn, hey, go, Robbie said that message. John said that message. Mary said that. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna try I'm gonna try that on my next call. And we've lost a lot of that, right? Because you can't do that over Zoom calls. So you know when you're when you go to look for ways to bring those, like we talked, coachable moments uh, together. So you're using a bit of data that you see. And then like we try and go, okay, hey, rather than just thinking of shadowing for new people, I can go, you know what? Emmett does a great demo of that new feature. He's worked closely with the product management team. Let's have him be the one to run a session on it for the team. Completely separate from the weekly sales meeting, completely individual thing. Or Bob did brilliant on the marketing campaign for product X. Let's have Bob engage with marketing or whatever and have them step up to a little bit more than just do the deals and just do the revenue and just do the chasing stuff on the CRM. And I think that's a massive, massive way to do it. I know for us in control, obviously our platform is designed around giving space for managers to keep on top of their coaching requirements. And we focus an awful lot on pipeline reviews because of the space that we're in. Everybody's favorite meeting, or depending on who, on where you're at, right? But it's also the place where things can fall down a lot, and ex- expectations aren't very clear. Like I've had sales reps say to me in the past that they absolutely dreaded the pipeline interview with me, and um, because they felt that they were just going to get everything wrong highlighted as opposed to everything good that they were doing. But over time, they started getting a better understanding of what I was looking for, so they go. I'm going to show him, I'm going to make sure he can't catch me at this time. And they were right on top of everything that they needed to get done. So it, it, it in effect, it became a great training growth to them. I think that's what we want to make sure that we look at when we talk about things like, like setting expectations very clearly with people and like having a space for them to come with their questions and for you to go with your questions and come up with a, like a, a joint-defined plan for what they need to develop. I think that's huge.
0: One of the simplest things that a team leader can do is to just look at the team meetings and, and look at the emphasis. Is it all about task? Because a really effective team meeting is both task and learning. And half the time, at least, should be around learning Learning in, um, context. So what do we learn? Let's review whether we got that sale or we didn't get that sale. What do we do right? What do we do wrong? What can we do uh, better? But it's all about review together. And there are also lovely little techniques. One of my favourite is cock-up of the month. And basically what you do with cock-up of the month is you have a prize and you win it, for the best mistake of the month. And it's not the mistake itself you get, it's for the learning you've extracted and shared with the team. And you know, it's a, it's a great way to make it safe to talk about things that went wrong. You know, I've learned now not to park in the, in the in the reserve car parking space of the managing director or one of the clients, you know, that's, that kind of thing. But it's the extracting of learning, getting into the habit of extracting of learning for this. The one piece of advice, if as a sales manager, you're going to do that, is make sure you win it the first time to give people the confidence that, you're, that you cock up as well. And I think we, we can build our portfolio of things that shift the emphasis towards learning as much as towards task achievement. And if you can put all that learning, take all the personal development plans and put them into a team development plan and review that team learning plan and the regular part of, so we, we've got your sales review meetings, your learning review meetings at the same time, you're creating an engine for developing the whole team.
2: Back in the day, we had a fails channel in Slack. I don't know what other companies do that, but again, it comes back to your point on psychological safety, though, because I remember the first couple of times someone put a fail in, and the CEO, young guy of this of this company, uh, made jokes and made fun of it, thought he was being funny, and it completely shut the whole thing down because people went, "I'm not going to be the one posting in on that channel if that's the way it's going to go," you know. So again. He got his psychological safety there for so that one, so
0: well he he's obviously a great candidate for the the technical definition of a coach. The technical definition of a coach is a coach is what comes immediately behind the horse's ass. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that I think that I think that point around the the team though and that learning mentality you know it's interesting when we talk about whether it's the cock up of the month, which I love that. I'm sure there'll be a few people adopting that from this, but Looking at those, where have we lost business, which are our losses, because nobody likes talking about those, but that's the ground where we're going to learn the most generally. So I think, you know, to both your points, bringing that out in the open in a safe way is so important and having a bit of structure around how we do it, having some behavioral guidelines around how we do it and extracting that learning and then making sure that's shared. I think is hugely important. And, you know, it's easy to talk about the wins and take all the kudos. But very often other salespeople hear about a win and think, oh, yeah, but that was just that customer or that was a unique set of circumstances. They can't always relate it to their own situation, which in itself is an, is another topic around how people learn and making it relatable. But the losses, people will very often think, oh, God, I don't want to be in that position. And privately, at least we thinking, oh, God, that could be me. <laughs> So I think creating that where it's not only okay to share, but it's actually critical to share those things becomes really important. And and you only get that by creating that psychological safety, but that coaching culture, that learning culture is fundamental to to even getting to the point where you can start to do that effectively.
2: And Joe, especially on the sales side, because as sales reps and managers, we do take the losses personally, right? and we feel like we could have done more. So it's always my fault. Well, just the way we take credit for the wins too, right? But I think when it comes to the losses, like you have to be in a position where you can review those losses and understand, did I actually do some, enough on that myself personally? And if I have done, then okay, what, where did it break down? Is it on the product side? Is it on the messaging side? Is it just on the customer side? Maybe there was a whole host of things that go into a deal being won and lost and it's never just on the activity of one person. So again, being open about that and being honest about it and being able to share that learning because I guarantee you if I have an opportunity and I lost it because I didn't position new feature X quite well, then go okay. Maybe four or five other people on the sales team had the same issue, and maybe we need to do a coaching session around how we demo that part of the product
1: and figure it out together. You know, we exactly. need to, maybe maybe nobody knows the answer, but collectively we could all contribute something to finding at least a hypothesis that we can go and and work on and and build on from there. I did some work with a client quite a number of years ago, and they were really trying to encourage that idea of account team selling. So get away from the idea that you're an individual account seller and everybody else is sort of behind you but actually you're going into the customer as a team so we had this whole account team program and the motto of it was don't lose alone." you know it's one thing to say i've come and won this but if you come and say i've lost this deal and you haven't lost it as a team you've lost it because you didn't engage the team properly you know you're in trouble if you've lost it collectively as a team fine, you know, we'll learn from it and we'll do something different. And that whole idea of don't lose alone became a really important mantra that got over some of those barriers to people wanting to just control it or just being used to being very self-sufficient and not really bringing other people in or only bringing them in in a very tactical way when needed. But you need that sort of impetus, I think, to try and change things.
0: Most of what we talked about has been traditional linear thinking. And what we're learning now is that all teams, but particularly sales teams, because of the inf- their influencing teams, there's a great deal of potential for them to achieve a lot more by being aware of their internal systems and all the other systems around them. So when we start talking about complex adaptive systems and chaos theory, you can see people go glazed eyes and, and not surprisingly, really. But you know, you can boil this down quite simply into the quite simple dynamics and look at, at, the, at the role of the team, what the team is there for and, and how it does what it does. And look at the relationships between the stakeholders and influencers. So stakeholders are people who are affected by what you do, and influencers are people who actually define what you could do or constrain what you can do. And of course, sometimes they're the same people. But looking at all of your stakeholders as a team, and what's the the relationship with each one of those? So we go from a a linear point of view, we do or don't make sales with our customers to a systemic point of view where let's look at the stakeholders and the relationship that we build with each of those stakeholders and how we're going to listen to them and understand what's really driving them. In COVID, there were lots of examples of sales teams going out to their customers and saying, well, what are the big problems that you're facing during COVID? Okay, how can we work together to alleviate your problems and, and, and ours at the same time? And there were some lovely examples of, of, of just having those conversations help both survive. But if you go to a complex adaptive systems approach, you then say, what's the interactions, the whole system between those stakeholders, different kinds of customers, how do they interrelate with each other? A sales team can be, because it's gathering information all the time from lots of different customers, you're the bridge between them. You can affect the whole system. And it's learning how to do that. So you coach not just individuals and you don't just coach the team, but you coach the system. We had a lovely example of this. It's outside of the sales area, but I like it as a nice example. Here in the UK, we've got a crisis with ambulances. They're supposed to arrive in minutes and they take hours. And the big reason for that is that ambulances are queued up outside hospitals, waiting for a bed to become available to put people into. And the hospitals have got all these beds filled up with mostly old people who could be released to go home, but the social services haven't got the resources to be able to provide them with the care fast enough to take them out of the hospital bed. And so the ambulance team with coaching said, well, okay, let's look at the system. It's all intertwined here. What's the intervention that we can get together to ease the problem for everybody? And they came up with a very simple solution. They got all the three various funding bodies together, or more than three, and said, right, we'll rent a hotel and use this as a staging post for people in between coming out of hospital and going to, to their homes to free up all those beds so that we can speed up the whole problem. I think it's a nice, neat example of what we can do because... We're in that privileged position or salespeople are in that privileged position of ha- knowing what's happening in multiple companies across the sector. You have the potential to change things in, the se- in that centre. And I think the whole role of coaching is not just about the individual. I think it's about how we coach the system. So in a way, every salesperson should be a coach to the system around them.
1: I love that. And I think that ties back in. You talked about those four characteristics of good coaches. It's that compassion of understanding and empathizing with the problem. It's that connectedness very much that you just talked about and underpinning that, the curiosity and the courage to figure it out and make those bold statements, isn't it? So, you know, I I think one message perhaps we're taking for sales leaders, but also for sales teams is to what extent are they embodying those characteristics? Because if they embody those, it's going to take them on the right path to question that bigger picture, isn't
0: it? Yeah, we have more power than we realize. I think that neutral curiosity perspective
2: is, is massive. It behooves every sales leader to pull their managers out of the trenches a little bit and come up, just a little peek above the parapet to say, what's really going on here in this whole system? And what's really going on here in all of the industries and all the customers? And try and join up some dots and tie it together. And I think that's sometimes uh, lacking for some organizations. And I think that would really help a lot for, from a coaching perspective.
1: It's definitely something I think we see at that disruptive market level when a company can see how they can disrupt a market and change the way things happen. We definitely start to see it there. But the, the example you gave around ambulances, David, there are so many actually much smaller and less life threatening instances, but which could have a huge impact. But it takes that I quite often talk about it's sort of like a two two circle Venn but you know your customer knows a lot about their market and they know a little bit about the technology if that's what you're selling and you know a lot about the technology market and a little bit about their market but it's that coming together where you can find some really surprising new ways to do things that could impact on both and so if you then start to build that out in a more systemic way and look at different organizations and what's the connection between them somewhere in the middle of that now multi-circled Venn it's probably something nobody's thought of before that could be really significant.
0: And if I were to sum everything up, I like to think of one single courageous thing that a leader can do to change the direction and actually and then just get, get moving on this, this journey. And that thing would be to go to the team as a whole and say to the team, how can you help me in creating the culture and environment that we need to be at our best? And it's hard to resist that
1: a good question that drives a lot of subsequent conversations, I think. David, Emmett, this has been a really interesting conversation as I knew it would be bringing you both together and and looking at this huge and important topic. So thank you both very much.
0: Thank you too. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, this episode promised a lot and I hope it delivered for you. Some key takeaways for me were David's four C's, compassion, curiosity, courage, and connectedness combined with the two things only the leader can do. Emmett's point about data getting in the way also resonated in a world where data-driven is a mantra that can sometimes prevent us from seeing the wood for the trees. We're dealing with people and the big picture, not just the data. Back in season two, in my conversation with Cathy Belford and Matt Phelan, Matt likened developing people to sunflowers that need nurturing with the right conditions rather than being told to grow. That image came back to me during our conversation here. Finally, I think David sets us all a bold challenge to coach the system, not just the individual or the presenting problem. Great advice in an uncertain, unpredictable and disruptive world. So thank you once again to Emmett and David for joining me. Our final episode in this season takes a slightly different format. As Alate celebrates its 20th year, we take a look at some of the trends we've seen over the years and where we think the B2B tech sales world is heading next. I hope you'll join us and I'll see you there.